What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Today on the podcast, we're joined by one of the most polarising voices in contemporary literature, Brett Easton Ellis. His lengthy career, including novels Less Than Zero and American Psycho, has weathered the storm of controversy time and time again. And he has now cemented his place as cultural icon and provocateur. To speak about his latest novel, The Shards, part autofiction, part horror, he's joined by award-winning author and journalist, Alex Preston. Let's go to Alex now to hear more. I'm joined today by Brett Easton Ellis, a writer whose fame and sometimes infamy has spanned five decades. He is the author of six novels, but his name is most commonly associated with American Psycho, the first person account of Patrick Bateman, a 27-year-old investment banker and serial killer. That transgressive novel was first published in 1991 after being dropped by one publishing house for concerns over its violent content. And after stirring up a decade of controversy, it was followed by a film adaptation featuring Christian Bale in 2000. Brett's new novel, The Shards, set in the early 1980s, is a story of beautiful teenagers driving sports cars through the highways of LA, attending their fancy prep school by day and playing adult in their parents' empty mansions by night. All the while, a serial killer is on the loose. Brett? Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you for having me. Um, so I loved this book. I reviewed it uh, a few weeks ago. And when I say it stayed with me, that's both a good thing and a bad thing, because uh, it is a truly horrifying read, as well as being an absolutely compelling read. One, one of the things I'm interested about to, in, in talking to you about is is how you thought about this book generically. It's a, it's a coming-of-age story. It's a coming-out story. It's a psychodrama. It's a horror story. It's also what we might pretentiously call a Kunstlerroman, a, a book about the cultural and social conditions that led to the creation of your great first novel, Less Than Zero. Tell me about whether you think about those kinds of generic conventions when you start a book uh, and how you think about them now that you have finished this one. Well, first of all, I think I've just been influenced by novels my entire life. I just was an early reader. I was an avid reader. I was obsessed with books, all kinds of books, mostly novels throughout my adolescence, into my adulthood, and even now. 
So books and novels were always a part of my life. And I think they were a reason as to why I wanted to write them. I enjoyed them immensely and they gave me a lot of pleasure. And I think um, that's why I became a writer. I wanted to, you know, uh, emulate these things that I read that gave me so much pleasure. Um, but the books that I've written have also come from a very emotional place. Um, they are not overthought, I guess, or over-intellectualized. Um, they are, uh, I'm feeling something, I'm going through some kind of pain, some confusion, something in my life isn't working out, I'm having problems with my dad, unrequited love, the whatever, the 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 absurdity of fame, working in Hollywood, going to university, whatever. Things that are happening in my life that I want to write about and that I'm feeling and that are emotional. And then I write the novel. But I'm not necessarily thinking of any of those things that you mentioned uh, in the question. Uh, I'm just really thinking about basically myself, what I'm going through, and how am I going to navigate this period in my life? And how am I going to exorcise some of the pain and come to a moment of understanding and acceptance as to where I am? That, that's interesting, because one of the things that you pick up in the novel, and, and one of the things that I guess finishing it is immediately apparent, is this is more clearly a horror novel, I think, than anything you've written before. And there are numerous nods to, to Stephen King. And, and while I, I guess you and Stephen King would not immediately be placed side by side in anyone's heads, I, I think you both have an idea of the incredible power that the form of the novel has to stir all kinds of emotions, but particularly in this case, to, to terrify and to unsettle your reader. You know, it's quite interesting uh, that you mentioned Stephen King because, of course, I wrote an homage to Stephen King called Lunar Park, a novel published in 2005. And he was a writer that had inf uh, that was probably my first big influence because when he f was publishing his initial novels in 1973, 74, 75, I was a child, a precocious child who read Stephen King as he was being published. So I was nine or ten when I read Carrie, and I was eleven when I read Salem's Lot, a book I had become completely obsessed with for many years, and The Shining, of course. Uh, which was a huge influence on many aspects of Lunar Park. So, And Stephen King reviewed Lunar Park, actually, and gave it a fantastic review in a now-defunct magazine, or maybe it's still around, called Entertainment Weekly, where he had a column for a year. Uh, I remember I cried a bit when I got that. Uh, when I read that interview, uh, when I read his review, I was in an airport in Miami at a newsstand. That's how I got it. And I was uh, teared up a little bit. He was such a big influence on me. Um, yes, Stephen King had the ability to change the face of modern horror by setting it in a realistic and recognizable world, something that I had never before seen in horror fiction. I was a big horror fiction reader, sci-fi and fantasy. And what was so surprising and frightening about King, especially in those novels, is that 
the, the, the haunted house and the vampires and the girl with telekinesis, they were all grounded in a recognizable world with songs that you knew and, and cultural events of the day were the wallpaper in the background. And, you know, uh, uh, people talked about what movies they just saw, whatever, all this, a lot, and a lot of brand names, which I hadn't seen in fiction either. So anyway, Stephen King was a big uh, influence on me. But I don't know if we see the novel. I, I mean, I did not primarily see The Shards as a horror novel, though I know many people, and especially my publishers, like to push the serial killer angle. For me, so much of it was about the pleasure of being able to return to the past, to a particular moment in my life and clarify some stuff that has been bothering me and been haunting me for years and years and years. The boys I knew, my girlfriend in high school, how to control this superpower, which was writing for me. Uh, it was getting out of control. I was a liar. I embellished stuff. I made things up all the time. I was pretending to be a straight guy for my girlfriend. I was having a clandestine uh, affair with a closeted boy at my school, etc., etc. And finally, it all kind of blew up in my face. And I really wanted to write about that. That was the important thing to write about, uh, the breadth of 1981. And also, I, I wanted to go back to Los Angeles of 1981. And I wanted to write about that time and places that are gone as well. And so, in a way, it was such an act of nostalgia for me that really um, the serial killer aspect was always there. I mean, when I first thought up this book in 1982, when I wanted to write it, as the events were happening to me, the serial killer was always an object there, a metaphor for me for a lot of things. And also because serial killers were everywhere in California in 1982 and 81, and so it seemed like, why not have one in this book? But, um, you know, yes, you are correct. Using the novel as a way, uh, in the way that Stephen King uses the novel, totally legit. I agree with exactly with what you're saying. I don't know if that was so heavily on my mind when I was writing The Shards. I have to be, if I have to be completely honest. Um, you put a disclaimer at the end, you know, the traditional disclaimer, this is a work of fiction, uh, none of the characters, places, etc., except for the author himself are, have any relation to, to, to real life. Obviously, with, you know, with both uh, Less Than Zero, but also Imperial Bedrooms, you, you use a kind of cipher figure, uh, Clay Easton, rather than Brett Ellis, as, as the representation of, of the author in your work. And I just, I just wondered, what, what drove the decision not to have Clay in this book, too? I, I wonder whether it's because, in many ways, this feels like a more personal and a, a closer book to you, or or is that just my reading of it? No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, when I first started thinking about this novel and it started announcing itself to me, when I was, in fact, the Brett Ellis of 18, um, I don't think I got very far. I had an outline. I knew exactly what the story beats were. I don't think the character was called Brett. I really don't. And I don't remember what I called him. It might have been Alex. It might have been Alex. I don't know. It certainly wasn't Clay because I was already working on Less Than Zero before the Shards announced itself. I started working on Less Than Zero, I think, when I was about 16. And Clay was always the name of that narrator. 
Um, and so I don't know what the name of the character in the shards was then. But by the time um, a, uh, the shards had come around uh, in April of 2020 and finally said, write me, here I am, are you in the mood? And I was in the mood and I, and I, and I was connecting with all of this material I, had, uh, I couldn't quite connect with or, or avoided or just wasn't within my grasp. Um, I thought, you know, God, I am going to write so much about me that time, my friends, my girlfriend, a lot of things that happened to me. Why would I not write a, why wouldn't I, why would I call this guy Joseph or Paul? Why would I do that? Uh, obviously, um, I just call him Brett. And, uh, you know, what does it matter? And so uh, that's how I worked. I felt in so many ways. For so much of the novel, I was writing a memoir, even though this is a novel. And of course, when you read it, you will understand that it's a novel. But it was also, in many ways, so much of it was my memories of high school and my memories of the boys and the girls I knew uh, and things that happened to me that I thought it just would have been disingenuous to not call the character Brad Ellis. That's all. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can I can totally see that, and um, you know, a, a review in the FT uh, for, from the beginning of this year referred to it as as by far your saddest book. Um, you know, certainly the the foreword to the book makes it sound like it was incredibly painful to write, but there's also there's a deep beat of nihilism that that runs through it and and seems to me to locate itself in the repetition of of that line from Ultravox's Vienna uh you know it means nothing to me do you do you feel it as a sad novel and does it seem to you a sad object now i think i think all of my novels are sad novels i mean if you want to look at them from a certain angle I would think they're all sad. I would say, I would argue and say Imperial Bedroom is my saddest novel in a way. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I, look, I don't know if I look at the shards as a sad novel as much as I look at it as a, a wistful one in a way. And also um, slightly scary and at times horrific so much of it, I realized as I was writing it, even though I had the entire outline from 1982 down, um, it didn't change at all, except for that added scene at the end at the book signing between uh, Tom Wright and Brett. That was added. Um, but everything else was in uh, the um, was in that outline I wrote at 18. And I didn't particularly have any feelings of sadness while writing the book. Uh, I know that's not what you're asking me. I'm in a state of bliss and happiness when I'm writing a book. I loved writing The Shards, just as I loved writing every single book I've written. Uh, I had an eight-year-long love affair with Glamorama. I loved writing that book, and I love writing every book that I write. So I'm not really feeling a sense of sadness or trying to convey a sense of sadness. I'm really not even sure what I'm trying to convey. I'm really just working on a, a book that I want to work on and that I'm feeling in that moment. But um, I can understand how a reader would read this book and say, God, this is um, a sad book. I think it's also what's interesting to me and what is even more apparent now is what 
the narrator ultimately, without giving spoilers away, gets away with. And that that is very much a theme that has run throughout my novels. And, um, you know, whether you look at American Psycho through a certain angle and you see uh, uh, Patrick Bateman as much as an example of uh, privileged empire as you see the Brett Ellis of the Shards, well, I don't know. I think there's a connection there to a degree. Um, I think I look at Buckley in a way as um, in the same way as I guess Patrick Bateman looks at Manhattan. Fred Ellis looks at Buckley that way, a place of entrapment and a place where he has to try to fit in somehow, uh, just as Patrick Bateman feels the same way about um, about Manhattan and that and, and that time, the late 80s. So I so I was thinking a lot about a lot of other things. But sure, it's a sad book, I guess. But I, I, I don't know. I think it's more wistful. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv just you you mentioned buckley there i I have to say i didn't know about buckley but have since read up about it and alma mater of 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 paris hilton nicole ritchie uh, a host of kardashians how much did you have to change it in order to represent it here because surely it can't have been as awful as you make it sound Oh, I don't think I made it awful at all. I thought it was wonderful. I thought Buckley was fantastic. It was paradise. You know, the problem was me and 1981, in a way, but Buckley itself, I feel so privileged to have gone there. Um, it was a absolute, it was the most beautiful high school in Los Angeles, in the LA area. Just a stunning campus, which I don't really think I did justice to in, in my descriptions of it. Um, I don't think necessarily the Brett Ellis of um, 17 or 18 cared that much about how nice it looked. Though I was hoping that the 56, 57-year-old Brett Ellis was trying to get across the beautiful stucco buildings with the Spanish tile, the koi ponds. Uh, the walnut trees that were everywhere, that beautiful pavilion in the courtyard. No, Buckley was a was a great school, and I feel very lucky to have gone there. It just really might not have been the best school for me, and I didn't really want to be in high school. I knew very at a very young age I wanted to be a writer, and I just had to get through high school in a way. And I did think, as I write about it in charge. What's the easiest way to get through my senior year? Well, hang out with the popular clique, I guess. You know, lose some weight, work out, look good, get a hot girlfriend, and, you know, just be the tangible participant. And that will make it so much easier. And it really blew up in my face. It didn't, it was a, it was a facade I couldn't maintain. And, and I think I wanted to address that in the book as well. 
But, but that's so I, I had noted down tangible participant as something I wanted to talk about because it feels to me that that maybe that lies at the heart of what makes this such a great novel, which is that it seems to get at something essential about being adolescent in the same way that maybe, you know, Holden Coalfield got at something essential about being adolescent at a, at a different time, that, that there is a really convincing representation of teenage life. And you say in your afterword that in so many ways I'd remained a child. And I wonder, you know, if you could talk about the sense of maybe getting snagged in time at that age or the way that you in some ways glamorize glorify this era but also about the way that you needed this distance of many decades in order to do that time justice uh i think you're absolutely right i think that all of the missed opportunities to write the shards which was a book i've always wanted to write had to do with not being old enough and not having enough time pass and not and that this story really did need to be told by a much older man by uh um looking back at the events of his past from 40 years ago and that had to be the key because my nostalgia for that period my longing for that period was more intense at 56 or 57 than it certainly was at 37 or 47. So I think um, that was the perfect age uh, for me to write this book. And also I was just thinking of, you know, you just start thinking of your youth in a different way than you do when <laughs> you're younger. I was, I was thinking a lot about how different my sex life was at 17 and 18 how how my horniness skyrocketed into the stratosphere most days, every day. And that lust played such a big part of my life and my focus and in ways that it just doesn't now, you know, it just simply doesn't. And I was thinking about the availability of bodies, of people to me and being young and this energy um, and also just this, this overwhelming passion to express myself through writing that then bled into making up shit about friends or uh, starting gossip about a teacher or whatever it was. So yes, definitely. And also being much more, I think, vulnerable. Vulnerable in describing myself because now and going back and writing about that, Brett, in a very honest, very vulnerable way that there is absolutely no way at 18 or 19 I would have done it. 18 or 19, when I started this book, it was being written in that very flat, clipped, present tense minimalism by the 17-year-old Brett. So there's no backstory. Uh, there is no, uh, you know, has, there was no historical, fictional L.A. stuff being presented as there is now in this one. And it was just, it just wasn't working. It just wasn't working at all because I think I was too young. 
So yes, it was age was the factor completely in why this novel spoke to me now. Yeah. And, I, and and as I say, I think that's why, to, to my mind, that's why it works because it does feel that it attains something that I think very few books about this age do, which is to to feel like it was you know it's a very different place from my child from my teenage years, but but seems utterly familiar. I wonder about. The you know I was saying Buckley seems awful. the The thing that really struck me was just how there is a sort of uh, element of desperation and in in many of these young people, and they're at that time of of just about to tip over into adulthood, and there are still these traces of of being children, and yet they are they are dosed up on their parents' medicine cabinets, they're on quaaludes, they're on Valium. It's it's a much more kind of pharmacological uh, kind of hedonism than, uh, say, 10 years before them, it would have been, you know, pot and 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 mushrooms and, and LSD, I guess. And, and I, I guess maybe I felt that there was something just a little bit depressing about that and about these, these beautiful, you know, particularly the, the young women in the group, Susan and Debbie, who who just seem so, you know, they are not tangible participants either. Uh, I really think this is one of the least druggiest novels that I've written. I don't think Susan does any drugs except a bit of cocaine at one point at her own party. That's where a lot of the cocaine is at Susan Reynolds' party. And of course, Debbie carries little packets with her all over the place. Brett does it, I think, once at Susan's party. Again, Susan's party is the coke party, but there really isn't. I don't think anyone else is doing any other drugs. Brett takes Valium, and then as the book keeps ratcheting up with more and more horrific events, there was a time that I liked quaaludes. I thought quaaludes were fun. I don't really see, and I mean, I think some weed is 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 smoked by the Brett character, and, and as the Brett character begins to collapse, he certainly is into weed and the quaaludes, and he he drains his parents' uh, liquor shelf, but uh, no one else does. Robert Mallory doesn't. Susan doesn't. Tom Wright doesn't. Ryan Vaughn took very good care of himself. He, has, he gets drunk on some Coronas and he leaves a party after Margarita. So I think there's the myth of Brett Easton Ellis that maybe infuses this book and makes it look a lot druggier than it, than it actually is. We actually, if I want to look at me and my friends, we became a lot druggier after that first or second year of college. And yes, less than zero, <laughs> which is about a year further along the shards. A much more druggy book, but I, I'm, I'm kind of digressing in terms of what what you were you were hinting at. What I noticed about these characters, looking back, that's so different from today, is how adult we all were, how fucking adult we were in dealing with stuff and with talking to each other, and how pragmatic in so many ways we were, and how we were really striving to become adults. We were living in a world made by adults, for adults. There was ch- there was no child culture, let's say, during that time. I mean, I think there was a, a new Disney movie open, I don't know, every two months, maybe, if at that. No one ever asked a child, oh, honey, what do you want for dinner? Oh, what can I get for you? Talk about 
being coddled? Are you? No, not at all. We were left to our own devices and we were left to become adults. And when I was remembering certain scenes from my life that I wrote down in the shards, I was just, it was just remarkable to me to see like how kind of adult and mature we were in so many ways uh, compared to, I think, you know, um, adolescence today. I mean, of course, we both grew up in separate times, but I mean, I didn't know any 42-year-old men who dressed up as Thor and went to Comic-Con. I mean, and that was the highlight of their year. And we certainly didn't have a new, uh, you know, an entire vast array of thousands upon thousands of Disney shows and animated stream from or whatever. So, so the drug, forget the drugs uh, to me. It was, it, it seemed to me to be kids that seemed a lot more adult uh, then than they but are they now. But were, they were adult by necessity because obviously one of the things in the book is, is the absence certainly of any positive adult role models and really only Debbie's parents feature in any significant fashion, I guess Matt's parents briefly, and, and they, they, they feature in very negative ways that, that these were, you know, who they would be considered, you know, children more or less in, in, in this day and age. And yet they were having to negotiate the world largely without the help of adults. Well, that's good and bad. Okay, there's a lot of good to that. There is there is something about uh, independence and finding your independence at a young age that's very, very positive, extremely positive. And when I look back, I do not see parental neglect as much as I see children who wanted to be adults and be left alone. And also in a culture where you were dying to get your car at 15 and a half, which you did get your driver's license in L.A. at 15 and a half, at least a learner's permit. So by the time you're 16, you're gone. You are gone. And we did, you just didn't have the kind of relationship with your parents that you did when you were a child. And where your parents were there for you. And they were there for all of my friends as well. Now, um, so I, I think it's more um, a child's urge and need uh, to move toward adulthood and that in a lot of ways our parents helped us by doing that, not by being neglectful, but, but just by being adults and we use that as an example to a degree. Look, there were Terry Schaefer's and if you read the book, you'll know what I mean when I, when I say there were Terry Schaefer's. But Jesus, you're going to call the police? You're going to have a nervous breakdown? You're going to like, you know, it was like, okay, this thing, these things happened to me and it's part of the adult world and I learned a lesson and I'm going to, to move on. Uh, so anyway, I know this is kind of a, an, a rambling answer, but... Um, no, no, I really like this because actually it, it, it almost says to me that one of the things that may have prompted this is like, I cannot imagine... Uh, the teenagers of 17, 18 that I know today going through what you went through or what the Brett character in the novel goes through, uh, even just the everyday interactions without it capsizing their life. And yet, as you Pretty sad. Yeah. Pretty sad, huh? That's, a, that's too bad. You know, look, there were problems in 1981 and certainly... Uh, I am, you know, uh, one of them to a degree was the fact that you had to be closeted. 
Well, you didn't have to be, but it made life so much easier uh, in a way. Uh, I wonder how different my life would have been if I didn't feel I had to be. And also, what the, how the world would have opened itself up to me if I'd been heterosexual. That was, that was something that I did have to work through at 16 or 17 when I heard every pop song, when I watched every movie, when I had to reprocess everything and think, oh, no, that's not Julia. That to me is uh, that to me is um, Michael, you know, when you're watching a movie and, and having to, you know, um, replace the love object in the pop song or in the movie or in the novel or whatever. And also realizing that out of the pool of men that were available to you, there was only about 3%. So you were in love a lot of the times and you developed crushes on men you could never have. that were never going to be there. Unlike my straight counterparts who had 97% of women open to them, et cetera, et cetera. So I had to work through all of that. And I did. I mean, I, Believe me, being gay was not my trauma story at all. I dealt with it quite easily. And I, but at 17 and in the shards was really the moment where I had to come to grips with it. And after that, I kind of did, you know, I went, but I'm getting off point again. We were talking about the adult world and about Terry Schaefer and the predatory nature of the adult world back then. That was um, largely, um, you know, just accepted in a lot of ways. And it's true. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to name names, but, you know, at a certain age, you know, we, we went to parties for adults, you know, and, and got hit on by adults. And we were perhaps underage and, you know, we'd either laugh about it or or in some cases with girls I knew, they went with it. Uh, certainly there were famous actors around and stuff. And. I don't know. I mean, we just didn't have these laws, I guess, where it was considered so terrible. I mean, we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun doing things that I think now kids look at as being horrific and that we were all somehow traumatized and we have post-traumatic stress syndrome. No, we don't. None of us did. It was fun. We wanted to be shocked. We wanted to be offended. I mean, it was not the world that we live in now. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I completely get that. Um, just to, to finish up, uh, I read that uh, you and Irvin Welsh are producing your own podcast. Is this true? And can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, I can. Irvine and I are working on a um, a true crime podcast that is fictionalized. We've come up with a story. And what we are going to do and what we are in the middle of doing is writing a podcast that uh, the listener will presume to be true about a crime that happened in Atlanta in 2022 and the cast of characters that were involved in these murders. And it, it's, it's quite difficult to do because it's not a screenplay. It's not a screenplay because in a screenplay you can show things and you don't have to have dialogue and you don't have to have a narrator. And so we have been rather, <laughs> you know, uh, artfully uh, trying to artfully compose this thing so that it works on an aural level. You know, it's again, it's not a book either. We're not writing a book and we're not writing a movie. It is a written 
podcast. So yes, that is called The Reckonings and we are almost done with it. And I don't, uh, it, it needs to be cast and it needs to be produced, but we are in uh, nearing the, the completion of it. Fantastic. I mean, it sounds like a, a, a wonderful idea. Um, Brett, thank you so much for your time. The Shards is a, is a novel that I have pressed upon friends, family, even my, my own children with the knowledge that it will surely damage them for life. Um, <laughs> but it is, uh, it is an extraordinary novel. And, um, and I can't remember a time I have read something so breathlessly and so desperate for the next time I could immerse myself in it. That was Brett Easton Ellis, author of The Shards, which is available now. I've been Alex Preston. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes with editing from Tom Hall. Thanks for joining us. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.